A reading of the spiritual instructions of Saint Seraphim of Sarah. Discourse number one on God. God is a fire that warms and kindles the heart and inward parts. And so, if we feel in our hearts coldness, which is from the devil, for the devil is cold, then let us call upon the Lord and he will come and warm our hearts with perfect love not only for him, but for our neighbor as well. And from the presence of warmth, the coldness of the hater of good will be driven away. The fathers wrote when they were asked, Seek the Lord, but do not be curious as to his dwelling place. Where God is, there is no evil. Everything that comes from God brings peace and profit and leads a man to humility and self-condemnation. God shows us his love for mankind, not only when we do good, but also when we offend and displease him. How patiently he endures our transgressions, and when he chastises, how mercifully he chastises. Do not call God just, says Saint Isaac, for his justice is not evident in your deeds. If David called him just and righteous, his son, on the other hand, showed us that he is rather good and merciful. Where is his justice? We were sinners and Christ died for us. A man becomes perfect in the sight of God to the extent that he follows in his footsteps. In the true age, God will reveal his face to him. For the righteous, to the degree that they enter into contemplation of him, behold his image as in a mirror. But there they will behold the revelation of truth. If you do not know God, it is impossible for the love of him to be awakened in you. And you cannot love God if you do not see him. The vision of God comes from knowledge of him. For contemplation of him does not precede knowledge of him. One should not think about the doings of God when one's stomach is full. On a full stomach, there can be no vision of the divine mysteries. Discourse number two on the mystery of the Holy Trinity. In order to look upon the most holy Trinity, one must ask the aid of those who taught about the Trinity. Saint Basil the Great, Saint Gregory the Theologian, and Saint John Chrysostom whose intercession is able to draw upon men the blessing of the Most Holy Trinity, but one should be warned not to attempt to look directly for oneself. Discourse number three, the reasons why Jesus Christ came into the world. The reasons why Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world are these. Number one, the love of God for the human race. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son. Number two, the restoration in fallen humanity of the image and likeness of God. As the Holy Church celebrates it, man who being made in the image of God had become corrupt through sin and was full of vileness and had fallen away from the better life divine, doth the wise creator restore anew. Number three, the salvation of men's souls. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And so we, in conformance with the purpose of our Redeemer, 
the Lord Jesus Christ, should spend our life in accordance with this divine teaching, so that through it we may obtain the salvation of our souls. Discourse number four on faith. Before anything else, one must believe in God, that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Faith, according to the teaching of St. Antioch, is the beginning of our union with God. One who truly believes is a stone in the temple of God. He is prepared for the edifice of God the Father, raised to the heights by the power of Jesus Christ, that is, of the cross, with the aid of ropes, that is, the grace of the Holy Spirit. Faith without works is dead, and the works of faith are love, peace, long-suffering, mercy, humility, rest from all works, as God himself rested from his works, bearing of the cross, and life in the Spirit. Only such faith can be considered true. True faith cannot be without works. One who truly believes will unfailingly have works as well. Discourse number five on hope. All who have firm hope in God are raised up to Him and enlightened by the radiance of the eternal light. If a man has no care whatever for himself because of love for God and virtuous deeds, knowing that God will take care of him, such hope is true and wise. But if a man takes care for his own affairs, and turns with prayer to God only when unavoidable misfortunes overtake him, and he sees no way of averting them by his own power, only then beginning to hope in God's aid, such hope is vain and false. True hope seeks the kingdom of God alone, and is convinced that everything earthly that is necessary for this transitory life will unfailingly be given. The heart cannot have peace until it acquires this hope. It gives peace to the heart and brings joy into it. Concerning this hope, the most venerable and holy lips of the Savior have said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is, have hope in me, and you will have relief from labor and fear. In the Gospel of St. Luke, it is said of Simeon, And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he did not kill his hope, but awaited the desired Savior of the world, and, joyfully taking him into his arms, said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart into thy kingdom, which I have desired, for I have obtained my hope, Christ the Lord. Discourse number six, on love of God. He who has attained perfect love exists in this life as if he did not exist. For he considers himself a stranger to the visible, patiently awaiting the invisible. He has been completely changed into love of God and has forgotten every other love. He who loves himself cannot love God. 
But he who, for the love of God, does not love himself, loves God. He who truly loves God considers himself a pilgrim and a stranger on the earth. For in his yearning towards God with soul and mind, he contemplates him alone. The soul that is filled with love of God at the time of its departure from the body does not fear the prince of the air, but takes flight with the angels as if from a foreign country to its native land. Discourse number seven on the fear of God. A man who has taken upon himself to travel the path of internal mindfulness must have above all the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom. Upon his mind there must always be engraved these words of the prophet, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. He should travel this path with the utmost care and with reverence for everything holy and not negligently. Otherwise, he must take heed lest there should apply to him the divine decree. Cursed be he that doeth the work of the Lord negligently. Reverent carefulness is necessary here because this sea, that is, the heart, with its thoughts and desires, which one must cleanse by means of mindfulness, is great and vast. And there are numberless reptiles there, that is, numerous vain, unjust, and impure thoughts generated by evil spirits. Discourse number eight on the keeping of recognized truths. One should not open one's heart to another without need. Out of a thousand you may find only one who would keep your secret. When we do not keep it ourselves, how can we hope that another would keep it? With a worldly man one should speak of human matters, but with a man who possesses a spiritual intelligence one should speak of heavenly matters. People who are filled with spiritual wisdom judge concerning the spirit of a given person according to the Holy Scriptures, looking to see whether his words conform to the will of God, and from this they draw their conclusions about him. When you happen to be among people in the world, you should not speak about spiritual matters, especially when no desire to listen can be noticed in them. In such a case, one should follow the teaching of St. Dionysus the Areopagite. Having yourself become divine through knowledge of divine things and having concealed holy truths as one whole in the depths of your soul, carefully guard them from the uninitiated, for as the scripture says, one should not throw before swine the pure, bright, and precious adornment of mental pearls. One must keep in mind the word of the Lord. Neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. And therefore, you should strive by every means to keep to yourself the treasure of your spiritual gifts, otherwise you will lose it and not find it again. For according to the tested teaching of St. Isaac the Syrian, better the help that comes from watchfulness than the help that comes from experience. When need arises or the situation calls for it, then you should act openly to the glory of God, according to the saying, Them that honor me I will honor, because then the way has already been opened. 
Discourse number 9 on loquacity. By itself, loquacity or excessive talkativeness with those whose temperaments are opposed to our own is enough to disrupt the interior balance of a mindful person. But most lamentable of all is the fact that because of this, the fire which our Lord Jesus Christ came to light upon the earth of human hearts can be extinguished, for nothing so cools the fire that a monk draws from the Holy Spirit into his heart for the sanctification of his soul, as much as communication and loquacity and any conversation, except for conversation with children concerning God's mysteries, which aids their growth in knowledge of God and contact with Him. One should especially keep oneself away from the society of the feminine sex, for just as a wax candle, even though unlit, will melt when placed amongst burning candles, so the heart of a monk will imperceptibly weaken from conversation with women. Concerning this, St. Isidore of Pelusium explains thus, If there are some conversations that corrupt good habits, then they are the ones that are conducted with women, even if these be quite decent because they can secretly corrupt the inward man by means of bad thoughts, and even though the body be clean, the soul nevertheless will be defiled. Is there anything more solid than a rock? Or think, what is softer than water or drops of water? Nevertheless, the unceasing action of one element overpowers the other. Thus, if one almost unconquerable substance can be conquered, by something which is nothing in comparison with it, and it suffers and is distracted, then can it be that the easily wavering human will, from the continuousness of the action, will not be defeated or corrupted? And that is why, for the guarding of the inner man, one must strive to restrain the tongue from loquacity. A man of understanding holdeth his peace and he that keepeth his mouth keepeth his life. And you remember the words of Job, I made a covenant with mine eyes, and I will not think upon a maid. And the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. If you have not previously heard from someone concerning a certain subject, you are not obliged to answer. He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. Discourse number 10 on prayer. Those who have truly decided to serve the Lord God should practice the remembrance of God and uninterrupted prayer to Jesus Christ, mentally saying, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. In the hours after the noon meal, one may say the prayer thusly, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, by the prayers of the Mother of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or one may have recourse directly to the Most Holy Mother of God, praying, Most Holy Mother of God, save us. Or one may repeat the angelic greeting, O Theotokos and Virgin, rejoice. By such exercises, in preserving oneself from dispersion and keeping peace of conscience, one may draw near to God and be united to Him. For in the words of St. Isaac the Syrian, 
Without uninterrupted prayer, we cannot draw near to God. From homily number 69. The manner of prayer was very well set forth by St. Simeon, the new theologian, in the Philokalia, Discourse on the Three Manners of Prayer. The merit of this was very well described by St. John Chrysostom. Prayer, he said, is a great weapon, a rich treasure, a wealth that is never exhausted, an undisturbed refuge, a cause of tranquility, the root of a multitude of blessings, and their source and mother. When at prayer in church it is profitable to stand with closed eyes in internal mindfulness and to open your eyes only when you become downcast, or when sleep should weigh you down and incline you to doze. Then you should fix your eyes upon an icon and the candle burning before it. If in prayer it should happen that the mind be taken captive and its thoughts plundered, you must humble yourself before the Lord God and beg forgiveness, saying, I have sinned, Lord, by word, deed, thought, and by all my feelings. Why one must always strive not to give oneself up to dispersion of thoughts. For through this the soul turns away from remembrance of God and love of Him through the workings of the devil. As St. Macarius says, the whole concern of our enemy is this, to turn our thoughts away from remembrance of God and from fear and love of Him. When the mind and heart are united in prayer and the soul's thoughts are not dispersed, the heart is warmed by spiritual warmth in which the light of Christ shines, making the whole inner man peaceful and joyous. We should thank the Lord for everything and give ourselves up to His will. We should likewise offer Him all our thoughts and words and strive to make everything serve only His good pleasure. Discourse number 11 On Tears All saints and monks who have renounced the world have spent their whole lives in weeping in the hope of eternal consolation according to the assurance of the Savior of the world. Blessed are they that mourn or weep for they shall be comforted. And thus should we weep for forgiveness of our sins. The words of the bearer of the purple should convince us of this. Going they went and wept, casting their seeds, but coming they shall come with joyfulness, carrying their sheaves. As well as the words of St. Isaac the Syrian, Moisten your cheeks with the tears of your eyes, that the Holy Spirit may abide in you, and cleanse the filth of your malice. Move your Lord with your tears, that he may help you. When we weep at prayer and laughter mixes in, then know that this comes from the cunning of the devil. It is difficult to understand the stealthy subtle workings of our enemy. The heart of one who weeps tears of tender feeling, in Russian, umilenye, is illumined by rays of the Son of Righteousness, Christ our Lord. Discourse number 12 on sorrow. When the evil spirit of sorrow seizes the soul, it fills it with distress and unpleasantness, and thus it does not allow one to pray with the necessary diligence. It hinders one from reading the scriptures with proper attention, it deprives one of meekness and deference in one's relations with the brothers, and it produces an aversion for every kind of conversation. 
For the soul that is filled with sorrow becomes as if mad and delirious, and is unable calmly either to accept good advice or to reply meekly to questions asked of it. It flees people as if they were the cause of the sorrow, and fails to understand that the cause of the affliction is within oneself. Sorrow is a worm of the heart that gnaws at the mother that gave it birth. The sorrowing monk will not stir his mind to contemplation and can never offer pure prayer. He who has overcome the passions has also overcome sorrow. But he who has been overcome by the passions will not escape the chains of sorrow. As a sick man is known by the color of his face, so one who is possessed by passions is given away by his sorrow. He who loves the world cannot but sorrow, but he who disdains the world is always joyful. As fire purifies gold, so the sorrow of longing for God purifies a sinful heart. Discourse number 13. Boredom and Despondency An inseparable companion of the spirit of sorrow is boredom. It attacks a monk, as the fathers have observed, at about midday, and it produces in him such a terrible restlessness that both the place where he lives and the brothers who live with him become unbearable to him. And during the reading there is aroused in him a kind of disgust, repeated yawning, and great hunger. Once the belly has been satisfied, the demon of boredom insinuates into the monk the idea of going out of his cell and talking to someone suggesting that the only way of saving oneself from boredom is by constantly conversing with others. And the monk who is vanquished by boredom is like desert tumbleweed, that now stops for a moment and now is again at the mercy of the wind. He is like a wisp of cloud pursued by the wind. This demon, if he cannot entice the monk out of his cell, begins to distract his mind during prayer and reading. This the notion occurs to him, shouldn't be like that. And that doesn't belong here. One must put things in order, and the demon does all this in order to make the mind idle and unproductive. This affliction is cured by prayer. Abstinence from idle talk, manual labor according to one's strength, reading of the word of God, and patience. For it is born of faint-heartedness, inactivity, and idle talk. It is difficult for one just beginning the monastic life to avoid boredom, for it is the first thing to attack him. Therefore, above all, one must guard against it by means of strict and absolute fulfillment of all the duties laid upon the novice. When our activities fall into a real order, boredom will find no place in your heart. Only those whose affairs have no orderly arrangement are afflicted with boredom, and so obedience is the best treatment for this dangerous affliction. When boredom vanquishes you, say to yourself, in accordance with the instructions of St. Isaac the Syrian, You desire again an unclean and shameful life, and if the thought occurs to you, it is a great sin to kill oneself. With ascetic practices, you should say in return, I am killing myself because I cannot live uncleanly. I shall die here so as not to see real death, the death of my soul in its relation to God.
it is better for me to die here in purity than to live an evil life in this world. I have preferred such a death to my sins. I am killing myself because I have sinned against God, and I will no longer anger him. What is life to me apart from God? This affliction I will bear so as not to be deprived of the hope of heaven. Why should God care for my life if I live evilly and anger him? Boredom is one thing, and the anguish of spirit that is called despondency is quite another. It sometimes happens that a man is in such a spiritual state that it seems to him that it would be easier to be annihilated or to be totally without consciousness or feeling than to remain any longer in this immeasurably painful state. One must come out of it quickly, guard yourself against the spirit of despondency, for from it comes every kind of evil. There is a natural despondency, St. Barsanufius teaches, because of weakness. And there is a despondency caused by a demon. They may be distinguished thus. Diabolical despondency comes before the time when one must give oneself some rest. Or when someone proposes to do something. Before he can finish a third or fourth of it, the demon forces him to leave the work and stand up. In such a case, one should not listen to him, but should offer a prayer and patiently continue to sit and work. And the enemy, seeing that the man offers a prayer because of this, withdraws, since he does not wish to give any occasion for prayer. When it pleases God, says St. Isaac the Syrian, to plunge a man into greater afflictions, he permits him to fall into the hands of faint-heartedness. The latter produces in him a strong force of despondency in which he experiences an anguish and a straightenedness of soul, and this is a foretaste of hell. As a consequence of this, the spirit of delirium comes upon him, and from it thousands of temptations spring forth. Anxiety, rage, blasphemy, complaining about one's lot, depraved thoughts, moving from place to place, and the like. If you will ask... What is the cause of this? Then I will tell you, your negligence, because you did not take the trouble to seek a cure for them. For there is one treatment for all this, and with the aid of it a man soon finds comfort in his soul. And what kind of treatment is this? Meekness of heart. There is no way apart from this by which a man may tear down the wall of these vices. Quite the contrary, he will find that they will overpower him. Despondency is sometimes called by the Holy Fathers idleness, sloth, or indolence. Discourse number 14 On Despair Just as the Lord is solicitous about our salvation, so too the murderer of men, the devil, strives to lead men into despair. A lofty and sound soul does not despair over misfortunes of whatever sort they may be. Our life is, as it were, a house of temptations and trials, but we will not renounce the Lord for so long as he allows the tempter to remain with us, and for as long as we must wait to be revived through patience and secure passionlessness. Judas the betrayer was faint-hearted and unskilled in battle, and so the enemy seeing his despair, attacked him and forced him to hang himself. But Peter, a firm rock, when he fell into great sin, 
like one skilled in battle, did not despair nor lose heart, but shed bitter tears from a burning heart. And the enemy, seeing these tears, his eyes scorched as if by fire, fled far from him, wailing in pain. And so, brothers, St. Antioch teaches, when despair attacks us, let us not yield to it, but being strengthened and protected by the light of faith, with great courage, let us say to the evil spirit, What are you to us? It's strange from God, a fugitive from heaven, an evil servant. You dare do nothing to us. Christ, the Son of God, has authority both over us and over everything. It is against him that we have sinned and before him that we will be justified. And you, destroyer, leave us. Strengthened by his venerable cross, we trample underfoot your serpent's head. Discourse number 15 on illnesses. The body is a slave. The soul is a sovereign. And therefore it is due to divine mercy when the body is worn out by illness, for thereby the passions are weakened, and a man comes to himself. Indeed, bodily illness itself is sometimes caused by the passions. Take away sin, and illnesses will cease, for they occur in us because of sin. As St. Basil the Great affirms, in his discourse on the truth that God is not the cause of evil, says, Whence come infirmities? Whence come bodily injuries? The Lord created the body, but not infirmity, the soul, but not sin. And what, above all, is useful and necessary? Union with God and communion with Him by means of love. If we lose this love, we fall away from Him, and in falling away we become subject to various and diverse infirmities. Headache may be caused by agitated and excessively forced mental activity, for instance. Discourse number 16 on patience and humility. One should always endure any trial for the sake of God and with gratitude. Our life is a single minute in comparison with eternity, and therefore, according to the Apostle, quote, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Bear it in silence when an enemy offends you, and open your heart to the Lord. When anyone demeans or takes away your honor, Try by every means to forgive him, in accordance with the word of the evangelist, quote, Of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. When men revile us, we should consider ourselves unworthy of praise. If we were worthy, everyone would bow down to us. We should always, and before everyone, humble ourselves, following the teachings of St. Isaac the Syrian. Quote, Humble yourself, and you will see the glory of God in yourself. For this reason, let us love humility, and we shall see the glory of God. For where humility issues forth, there the glory of God abounds. What is not in the light is all dark. Likewise, Without humility, there is nothing in a man but darkness alone. 
Discourse number 17 on works of mercy. We should be merciful to the needy and to travelers. The great lamps and fathers of the church took great care over this. We should strive by every means to fulfill the word of God. Quote, be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. And again, quote, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. To these saving words the wise listen, but the foolish do not listen, and therefore it is said, quote, He that soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he that soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. The example of St. Peter, the bread-giver, who threw bread to a poor man can inspire us to be merciful to our neighbors. We should do works of mercy with a good disposition of soul, according to the teachings of St. Isaac the Syrian. If you give to one who asks, let the joy of your countenance precede your gift and comfort his sorrow with good words. On duties and love towards one's neighbor. With one's neighbor, one should behave kindly, giving not even the appearance of offending. When we turn away from a man or offend him, it is as though a stone were laid on the heart. The spirit of a disturbed or desponding man one must strive to encourage by a word of love. If a brother has sinned, cover him, as St. Isaac the Syrian advises. Stretch out your garment upon the one who has sinned and cover him. We all ask the mercy of God, as the Church sings. Had the Lord not been with us, who would have been preserved whole from the enemy, and likewise from the murderer of men? In relation to our neighbors, we should be, both in word and in thought, pure and toward all impartial. Otherwise, we shall make our life unprofitable. We should love our neighbor no less than ourselves in accordance with the Lord's commandment, quote, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But we should not do this in such a way that love for our neighbor goes outside the boundaries of moderation and diverts us from fulfillment of the first and chief commandment, namely, the love of God. Concerning this, our Lord Jesus Christ instructs us in the Gospel, quote, He that loveth father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. This subject is treated quite well by St. Dimitri of Rostov. One may see love in a Christian man that is untrue to God, where a creature is made equal to the Creator, or where a creature is revered more than the Creator. But true love may be seen where the Creator alone is loved and preferred above the whole of creation. Discourse number 19 On the duties of those subject to superiors One should not interfere in the business of those in authority and judge it. By this means one offends the majesty of God, from whom authorities obtain their position. For there is no power but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God.
One should not oppose authorities who act for good, so as not to sin before God and be subjected to his just chastisement. Quote, Whosoever resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. One must be in obedience to a superior, for through this he who is obedient prospers mightily in the formation of his soul, and in addition he obtains by this means an understanding of things and comes to heartfelt contrition. Discourse number 20 Do not judge your neighbor. We must not judge anyone, even if with our own eyes we have seen someone sinning or walking in transgression of God's commandment. For according to the word of God, judge not that ye be not judged. And again, who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth, yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. It is much better always to bring to mind these words of the Apostle, quote, Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. For we do not know how long we may remain in virtue. As says the prophet who attained the knowledge of this matter by experience, quote, In my prosperity I said, I shall never be moved. Thou didst hide thy face, and I am troubled. Discourse number 21 On the Forgiveness of Offenses For an offense, whatever kind may have been given, one must not only not avenge oneself, but on the contrary, must all the more forgive from the heart, even though it may resist this, and must incline the heart by conviction of the word of God. If ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And again, pray for them which despitefully use you. One must not nurse in one's heart malice or hatred towards a neighbor who bears ill will, but we must strive to love him and, as much as possible, do good, following the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. Love your enemies, do good to them that hate you. And thus, if we will strive as much as lies in our power, to fulfill all of this, then we may hope that divine light will shine early into our souls, opening to us the path to the Jerusalem on high. Discourse number 22 On Care for the Soul Man, as far as his body is concerned, is like a lighted candle. A candle must be consumed. Thus, also, the body must die. But the soul is immortal, and so our care also must be more for the soul than for the body. Quote, for what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Saints Basil the Great, Gregory the Theologian, John Chrysostom, Cyril of Alexandria, Ambrose of Milan, and others, from their youth to the end of their life, were virgins, 
Their whole life was devoted to the care of the soul and not for the body. Thus, our whole endeavor, too, should be for the soul. The body should be strengthened only so that it might aid in the strengthening of the spirit. If we willfully exhaust our body to the point where the spirit also is exhausted, such an oppression will be foolish, even though it were done for acquiring virtue. But if it be pleasing to the Lord God that a man undergo illnesses, he will give him also the strength to endure. And so let illnesses be not from ourselves, but from God. Discourse number 23. With what one should nourish the soul. One should nourish the soul with the Word of God. For the Word of God, as St. Gregory, the theologian, says, is angelic bread, by which are nourished souls that hunger for God. Most of all, one should occupy oneself with reading the New Testament and the Psalter, which one should do standing up. From this there occurs an enlightenment in the mind, which is changed by divine change. One should habituate oneself in this way, so that the mind might, as it were, swim in the Lord's law. It is under the guidance of this law that one should direct one's life. It is very profitable to occupy oneself with reading the Word of God in solitude and to read the whole Bible intelligently. For one such occupation alone, apart from good deeds, the Lord will not leave a person without his mercy, but will fill him with the gift of understanding. And when a man nourishes his soul with the word of God, there is realized in him an understanding of what is good and what is evil. The reading of the word of God should be performed in solitude in order that the whole mind of the reader might be plunged into the truths of Holy Scripture, and that from this he might receive warmth, which in solitude produces tears, and from these a man is wholly warmed and is filled with spiritual gifts, which rejoice the mind and heart more than any word. One should likewise nourish the soul also with knowledge of the Church, how she has been preserved from the beginning up to the present what she has endured in one or another time. But one should know this not so as to desire to direct people, but in case one should encounter powerful opposition oneself. Most of all, one should do this strictly for oneself, so as to acquire peace of soul according to the teaching of the psalmist. Quote, Great peace have those who love thy law, O Lord. Discourse number 24 On Peace of Soul Nothing is better than peace in Christ. In it is destroyed every warfare of the spirits of the air and of the earth. Quote, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. It is the mark of a wise soul when a man plunges his mind within himself and has activity in his heart. 
Then the grace of God overshadows him, and he is in a peaceful state. And by means of this also, in a most peaceful state. Peaceful, that is, with a good conscience, and most peaceful, for the mind beholds within itself the grace of the Holy Spirit according to the word of God. Quote, and his place is in peace. Can one seeing the sun with one's sensuous eyes not rejoice? But how much more joyful it is when the mind sees with its inner eye the Son of Justice, Christ. Then in truth one rejoices with angelic joy. Of this the Apostle too said, quote, Our conversation is in heaven. When one walks in a peaceful state, it is as if one ladles out spiritual gifts with a spoon. The Holy Fathers, being in a peaceful state and being overshadowed by divine grace, lived long. When a man enters into a peaceful state, he can give out from himself and also upon others light for enlightenment of the mind. But before this, a man must repeat these words of the prophetess, Hannah. Quote, Let not high-sounding words come out of your mouth. And the words of the Lord, quote, Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. This piece, like some priceless treasure, our Lord Christ left to his disciples before his death, saying, quote, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Of it the Apostle likewise speaks, And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. And so we must concentrate all our thoughts, all of our desires, and all of our actions in order to receive the peace of God and to cry out even with the Church, O Lord our God, give us peace. Discourse number 25 on preserving peace of soul. One must by every means strive to preserve peace of soul and not to be disturbed by offenses from others. For this, one must in every way strive to restrain anger and by means of attentiveness to keep the mind and heart from improper feelings. And therefore we must bear offense from others with equanimity, and accustom ourselves to such a disposition of spirit that these offenses seem to concern not us, but others. Such a practice can give quietness to the human heart and make it a dwelling for God himself. An example of such angerlessness we see in St. Gregory the Wonder Worker, from whom a certain prostitute in a public place asked recompense as if for a sin he had committed with her, and he, not becoming in the least angry with her, meekly said to a certain friend of his, Give her quickly the sum that she demands. The woman had no sooner taken the unjust recompense than she was subject to the attack of a demon, and the saint drove the demon out of her by prayer. If, however, it is impossible not to be disturbed, then at least one must strive to restrain the tongue, 
According to the psalmist, quote, I was troubled and spoke not. In this case, we may take as an example Saints Spiridon of Trimithundos and Ephraim the Syrian. The first bore an offense thus. When, at the demand of the Greek emperor, he entered the palace, one of the servants, who had been in the emperor's chamber, taking him for a beggar, burst out laughing at him and did not allow him into the chambers, and then hit him on the cheek. Saint Spiridon, being gentle, in accordance with the word of the Lord, turned the other to him also. Saint Ephraim, while fasting in the wilderness, was deprived of food by a disciple in this fashion. The disciple, carrying food to him, accidentally shattered the dish on the way. The saint, seeing the sorrowing disciple, said to him, Do not be sad, brother. If the food did not desire to come to us, then we will go to it. And he went and sat down beside the shattered dish and, gathering the food, ate it. So without anger was he. And in what fashion to vanquish anger one may see from the life of Saint Pasius the Great, who asked the Lord Jesus Christ, who had appeared to him, to free him from anger. And Christ said to him, If you wish to vanquish anger and rage together, desire nothing, neither hate anyone nor belittle anyone. In order to preserve peace of soul, one must remove from oneself despondency and strive to have a joyful spirit and not a sad one according to the work of Sirach quote for sorrow has killed many and there is no profit therein when a man has a great insufficiency of those things needed for the body it is difficult to vanquish despondency but this of course is applicable to weak souls for the preservation of peace of soul, one must likewise, by every means, flee from judgment of others. By not judging, and by silence, peace of soul is maintained. When a man is in such a state, he receives divine revelations. In order to free oneself from judging, one must take heed of oneself, not to accept outside thoughts from anyone, and to be dead to everything. For the preservation of peace of soul, one must more often enter into oneself and ask, Where am I? At the same time, one must watch that the bodily senses, especially sight, serve for the inner man and do not distract the soul by means of sensuous objects. For they only receive grace-bearing gifts who have interior activity and are vigilant over their souls. Discourse number 26 on guarding the heart. We must be vigilant and guard our heart from unfitting thoughts and impressions. According to the word of the writer of Proverbs, quote, Keep thine heart with the utmost care, for out of these are the issues of life. From constant guarding of the heart, purity is born in it purity in which is beheld the Lord, according to the assurance of eternal truth. Quote, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Whatever of that which is best has flowed into the heart. We should not pour out without need. For that which has been gathered can be free of danger from visible and invisible enemies only when it is guarded in the interior of the heart. The heart boils, being kindled by divine fire, only when there is living water in it. But when this is poured out, it grows cold, and a man freezes. Discourse number 27 On Discernment of the Heart's Workings When a man receives something divine, in his heart he rejoices. But when he receives something diabolic, he is disturbed. The Christian heart, when it has received something divine, does not demand anything else in order to convince it that this is precisely from the Lord. But by that very effect it is convinced that this is heavenly, for it senses within itself spiritual fruits, love, joy, peace, and the rest. On the contrary, though, the devil might transform himself even into an angel of light, or might produce thoughts seemingly good, still the heart would feel a certain obscureness and agitation in its thoughts. Explaining this, St. Macarius of Egypt says, Though Satan might produce also visions of light, he is entirely unable to produce a blessed effect. And this is the well-known sign of his works. And thus, from these diverse workings of the heart, a man may know what is divine and what is diabolical. As St. Gregory, the Sinaite, writes, From the effect one may know whether the light shining in one's soul is of God or of Satan. Discourse number 28 on the light of Christ. To receive and to behold in the heart the light of Christ, one must, as far as possible, divert one's attention away from visible objects. Having purified the soul beforehand by repentance and good deeds, and with faith in the crucified, having closed the bodily eyes, immerse the mind within the heart, in which place Cry out with the invocation of the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then, to the measure of one's zeal and warmth of spirit toward the Beloved, a man finds in the invoked name a delight which awakens the desire to seek higher illumination. When through such a practice the mind enters into the heart, the light of Christ shines, illuminating the chamber of the soul by its divine radiance. As the prophet Malachi says, quote, But unto you that fear my name, the Son of Justice shall arise. This light is likewise life, according to the word of the Gospel. Quote, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. When a man beholds the eternal light interiorly, his mind is pure, and he has no sensory representations. But, being totally immersed in contemplation of uncreated goodness, he forgets everything sensory, and wishes not even to see himself. 
he desires rather to hide himself in the heart of the earth, if only he be not deprived of this true good, God. Discourse number 29 on thoughts and movements of the flesh. If we do not agree with the evil thoughts suggested by the devil, we do good. The impure spirit has a strong influence only on the passionate, while upon those who have purified themselves of passions he attacks only from the side or exteriorly. Is it possible for a man in his youth to burn and not be disturbed by fleshy thoughts? But one should pray to the Lord God that the spark of impure passions may be extinguished at the very beginning. Then the flame of passions will not increase in a man. Discourse number 30 On Heedfulness to Oneself He who is traveling the path of heedfulness should not trust only his own heart, but should verify the workings of his heart and his life with the law of God, and with the active life of ascetics of piety who have passed through such endeavor. By this means, one may the more easily both save oneself from the evil one and more clearly behold the truth. The mind of a heedful man is, as it were, a watchman on duty or an unsleeping guard of the inner Jerusalem. Standing at the height of spiritual contemplation, he looks with an eye of purity upon the enemy powers who go around and attack his soul, in accordance with the psalmist, quote, And my eye hath looked down upon my enemies. From his eye the devil is not hidden, who, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Nor are they who bend their bow to shoot in the dark the upright of heart. And thus such a man, following the teaching of the divine Paul, receives the whole armor of God, that he may be able to withstand in the evil day. And with this armor, and with the cooperating grace of God, he repels visible attacks and vanquishes invisible warriors. He who travels this path should not heed extraneous reports, from which the head can be filled with idle and vain thoughts and recollections, but he should be heedful toward himself. Especially on this path one must watch, lest one turn to the affairs of others, lest one think or speak of them, according to the psalmist, quote, that my mouth may not speak of the works of men. But one should pray to the Lord, quote, From my secret sins cleanse me, and from those of others spare thy servant. A man should turn his attention to the beginning and the end of his life. However, toward the middle part, where occur fortunes and misfortunes, he should be indifferent. To preserve heedfulness, one must retire into oneself, according to the word of the Lord, quote, Salute no man by the way. That is, do not speak without need unless someone 
run after you to hear from you something profitable. And revere elders and brethren with whom you meet with bows having your eyes always closed. Discourse number 31 Against Too Great Solicitude Too great solicitude for worldly things is natural to an unbelieving and faint-hearted man. And woe to us if we, in taking care of ourselves, do not confirm ourselves in our hope in God, who takes care of us. If we do not ascribe to Him the visible goods which we use in this present age, how can we expect from Him those goods which are promised in the future? Let us not be such faint believers, but rather let us seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto us, according to the word of the Savior. It is better for us to despise what is not ours, that is, the temporal and the passing, and to desire our own, that is, incorruption and immortality. For when we shall be incorruptible and immortal, we shall become worthy of visible contemplation of God, like the apostles at the most divine transfiguration, and we shall be joined in a union with God, surpassing the mind like the heavenly minds. For we shall be like the angels and sons of God, quote, being the sons of resurrection. Discourse number 32 on renunciation of the world. Fear of God is acquired when a man, renouncing the world and everything that is in the world, concentrates all his thoughts and feelings on the single thought of God's law and immerses himself entirely in contemplation of God and in a feeling of the blessedness promised to the saints. One cannot renounce the world and come into a state of spiritual contemplation while remaining in the world. For as long as the passions are not quieted, one cannot acquire peace of soul. But the passions do not become quiet as long as we are surrounded by the objects which awaken the passions. In order to come into perfect passionlessness and attain perfect silence of soul, one must labor much in spiritual reflection and prayer. But how is it possible fully and calmly to immerse oneself in contemplation of God and to be instructed in His law, and to ascend with all one's soul to Him in flaming prayer, while remaining amidst the perpetual roar of passions warring in the world? The world lies in evil. Without having freed itself from the world, the soul cannot love God sincerely. For worldly things, in the words of St. Antioch, are, as it were, a veil for the soul. If, says the same teacher, we live in an alien city, and our city is far from this city, and if we know our city, then why do we tarry in an alien city and prepare for ourselves a field and a dwelling in it? And how shall we sing a song to the Lord in an alien land? This world is the domain of another, that is, the prince of this world. Discourse number 33 On ascetic labors 
One should not undertake ascetic labors beyond one's measure, but one should strive to make our friend, the flesh, faithful and capable of performing virtues. One should go by a middle path. Quote, Turn not aside to the right hand nor to the left, and one should render unto the spirit what is spiritual, and unto the body what is bodily. For the maintenance of temporal life, one should render what is necessary. For life in society, that which is lawful and demanded by it, in accordance with the words of Holy Scripture, quote, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. One must condescend to the soul in its infirmities and imperfections, and bear its defects as we bear those of others. One must not, however, become lazy, but should spur oneself to do better. Perhaps one has eaten too much or done something similar to this which is natural to human weakness. Do not be disturbed at this, and do not add injury to injury, but bestir yourself to correction, and at the same time strive to preserve peace of soul, according to the word of the Apostle. Quote, Blessed is he that commandeth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. The same thought is contained in the words of the Savior, quote, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. If the body has been worn out by ascetic labors or sickness, one should strengthen it with moderate sleep, food, and drink, not observing even the times. Jesus Christ, after the raising of Jairus' daughter, immediately commanded, Give her to eat. Every success in anything we should refer to the Lord. And with the prophets say, quote, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to thy name give glory. To the age of about 35, that is, to the midpoint of our earthly life, it is a great accomplishment for a man to preserve himself. And many in these times do not remain in virtue, but turn aside from the right path to their own desires. Thus, St. Basil testifies of this in his homily on the beginning of Proverbs. Many have gathered much in their youth, but being in the midst of life, they could not bear the tumult of temptations which rose up against them from the spirit of cunning, and they were deprived of all this. And therefore, in order not to experience such a metamorphosis, one must put oneself, as it were, on the scale of a test and an attentive self-examination according to the teaching of St. Isaac the Syrian. For as on a scale it is fitting that the destiny of each be weighed out. Discourse number 34 On Repentance He who would be saved should ever have in his heart a disposition to repentance and brokenness. According to the psalmist, a sacrifice to God is a broken spirit. 
A broken and humbled heart God will not despise. In such brokenness of spirit a man can easily pass securely through the artful snares of the proud devil, whose whole care consists in agitating the human spirit and in agitation sowing his tares in accordance with the words of the gospel. Quote, Lord, didst thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? And he said unto them, An enemy has done this. When, however, a man strives within himself to have his heart humble and his thought not agitated, but peaceful, then all snares of the enemy are without effect. For where there is peace in one's thoughts, there resides the Lord God himself. Quote, his place is in peace. The beginning of repentance proceeds from fear of God and heedfulness, as the holy martyr Boniface says. The fear of God is the father of heedfulness, and heedfulness is the mother of inner peace, and the latter gives birth to conscience, which causes the soul to behold its own ugliness as in a certain pure and undisturbed water, and thus are born the beginnings and roots of repentance. Throughout our entire life, by our transgressions, we offend in greater or lesser degree the majesty of God, and therefore we should also ever humble ourselves before Him, begging remission of our debts. Question. Can a man who has received grace rise after falling? Answer, he can, according to the psalmist. Quote, I was overturned that I might fall, but the Lord supported me. For when Nathan the prophet accused David in his sin, the latter repented and immediately received forgiveness. An example of the same thing may be found in the anchorite who, going for water, fell into sin with a woman at the spring, and returning to his cell, acknowledged his sin, and began again to lead an ascetic life as before, not accepting the counsel of the enemy, who represented to him the seriousness of the sin, and would have led him away from the ascetic life. The Lord revealed this incident to a certain father, and commanded him to glorify the brother who had fallen into sin for such a victory over the devil. Discourse number 35 on fasting. To lay upon oneself a strict rule of abstinence in everything, or to deprive oneself of everything that might serve to lighten one's weakness, not everyone can accept this. One should partake of enough food every day so that the body, strengthened, may be the friend and helper of the soul in the performance of virtue. Otherwise, it may happen that, while wearing out one's body, one's soul also will grow weak. On Fridays and Wednesdays, and especially during the four fasts, partake of food once in the day, and an angel of the Lord will join himself to you. Discourse number 36 on vigilance against temptations. One should, as far as is proper and necessary, 
He's sometimes a child and sometimes a lion. This latter, that is, the lion, especially when passions or evil spirits rise up against us, because, quote, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We must always be attentive to the assaults of the devil. For can we hope that he will leave us without temptation? When he did not leave our founder and source of faith and perfecter, the Lord Jesus Christ himself? The Lord himself said to the Apostle Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. And thus we must ever call upon the Lord in humility and pray that he may not allow us to be tempted beyond our strength, but that he may deliver us from the evil one. For when the Lord leaves a man to himself, the devil is ready to grind him, as a millstone grinds kernels of wheat. Discourse number 37 on solitude and silence. More than anything else, one should adorn oneself with silence. For St. Ambrose of Milan says, I have seen many being saved by silence, but not one by talkativeness. And again, one of the fathers says that silence is the mystery of the future age, while words are the implement of this world. St. Isaac the Syrian. Only sit in your cell in heedfulness and silence, and by every means strive to draw near to the Lord, and the Lord is ready to transform you from a man into an angel. And to whom, he says, will I look, but to him that is meek and silent, and that trembleth at my words. When we remain in silence, our enemy the devil will have no success with regard to a man with a hidden heart. By this, however, must be understood silence in the mind. One who goes through such an ascetic endeavor should place all his hope on the Lord God, in accordance with the teaching of the Apostle, quote, casting all your cares upon him, for he careth for you. Such a one should be constant in his ascetic endeavor. Following in this, the example of St. John the Silent One, an anchorite, who in traversing this path strengthened himself with these divine words, quote, I will not leave thee, neither will I forsake thee. If one cannot always remain in solitude and silence while living in a monastery or occupying oneself with the obedience placed upon one by the superior, then at least a little time that is left after obedience should be devoted to solitude and silence. And for this little, the Lord God will not neglect to send down His grace-giving mercy. From solitude and silence are born tender contrition and meekness, the activity of this latter, that is meekness, in the human heart may be compared to that quiet water of Siloe, which flows without noise or sound, as the prophet Isaiah speaks of it, quote, the waters of Siloe that go softly. Remaining in one's cell in silence, work, prayer, and instruction, day and night in God's law, makes a man pious, 
For in the words of the Holy Fathers, the cell of a monk is the Babylonian furnace, and in it the three youths found the Son of God. Discourse number 38 on Absolute Silence Absolute silence is a cross upon which a man must crucify himself with all the passions and desires. But only think how much our Master, Christ, suffered beforehand, slanders and offenses, and only then ascended the cross. Thus we too cannot enter into absolute silence and hope for holy perfection if we do not suffer with Christ. For, says the Apostle, quote, If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified with him. There is no other path, says Saint Barsanufius. He who has entered into silence must unfailingly keep in mind why he has done so in order that his heart may not be turned away to something else. Discourse number 39 on the active and the contemplative life. Man is composed of soul and body, and therefore his life's path also should consist of activities of the body and activities of the soul, of action and mental contemplation. The path of the active life consists of fasting, continence, vigils, prostrations, prayer, and other bodily ascetic labors, which comprise the narrow and grievous path which, according to God's word, leads to eternal life. The path of contemplating life consists of the elevation of the mind to the Lord God, of heartfelt heedfulness, mental prayer, and, through such practices, contemplation of spiritual things. Everyone who desires to traverse the spiritual life must begin with the active life, and only then come to the contemplative, for without the active life it is impossible to enter into the contemplative. The active life serves to cleanse us of sinful passions, and it leads us up to the stage of active perfection, and by this very means it paves for us the path to the contemplative life. For only those who have been cleansed of passions and are perfect can approach that life. As one may see from the words of Holy Scripture, quote, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And from the words of St. Gregory, theologian, in his sermon for Holy Pascha, Only those most perfect by their experience approach without danger to contemplation. One should approach the contemplative life with fear and trembling, with contrition of heart and humility, with much experience of the Holy Scriptures, and 
if one can find him, under the direction of some experienced elder, and not with audacity and self-esteem. For he who is audacious and disdainful, in the words of St. Gregory the Sinite, having sought with pride for something beyond his worth, is compelled to think he is ready for it prematurely. And again, if anyone imagines in conceit to attain something high, this is a satanic desire, and without acquiring truth, he will be handily seized by the devil with his nets as his servant. But if one cannot find an instructor able to direct one into the contemplative life, in this case, one must be directed by the Holy Scripture. For the Lord himself commands us to learn from Holy Scripture, saying, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. Likewise, one must endeavor to read through the writings of the Fathers, and strive as much as possible, according to one's strength, to fulfill what they teach. And in this fashion, little by little, ascend from the active life to the perfection of the contemplative. For in the words of St. Gregory the Theologian, in his sermon on Holy Pascha, it is the very best deed when we each attain perfection ourselves. To God, who calls us, we must offer a sacrifice living and holy, always and in everything being sanctified. A man must not leave the active life even when he may have had success in it and have already entered into the contemplative life, for it cooperates with the contemplative life and elevates it. Traversing the path of the interior and contemplative life, one must not relax and leave it because people, having become attached to exterior and central things, strike us a blow in the very heart's feeling by the opposition of their opinions, and strive by every means to turn us aside from the traversing of the interior path placing in our path various obstacles, for in the opinion of the teachers of the Church, such as Blessed Theodoret in his commentary on the Song of Songs, the contemplation of spiritual things is preferred to the knowledge of sensual things. And therefore, one must not waver over any obstacles to the traversing of this path, strengthening oneself, in this case, with the Word of God. Quote, but let us fear not their fear, neither let us be dismayed, for God is with us. Let us sanctify the Lord God himself in heartfelt remembrance of his divine name and fulfillment of his will, and he shall be our fear. Discourse number 40 St. Seraphim's Instruction to a Novice Monk Whether by somebody's advice, or by the authority of others, or by whatever other means you came to this monastery, do not fall into despondency. This is God's visitation to you. If you observe that which has been told to you, you will be saved, yourself together with your close ones whom you care for. I have not seen, said the prophet, the righteous forsaken, nor his seed, 
Living, then, in this monastery, observe this. Standing in church, be attentive to everything without neglect. Learn the whole order of the church services, that is, Vespers, Compline, Nocturnes, Matins, the Hours. Learn to keep them in the mind. If you are in your cell without any work for the hands, be diligent in all kinds of reading, but above all, in the reading of the Psalter. Strive to read each section many times, so as to keep all in the mind. If there is work for the hands, occupy yourself with it. If you are called to an obedience, go to it. At handiwork, or being anywhere at obedience, constantly say the prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. At prayer, pay heed to yourself, that is, gather the mind and unite it with the soul. At the beginning, for a day, then for two, and then many, say this prayer with the mind, alone, each time separately, paying particular attention to each word. Then, when the Lord will kindle in your heart, the warmth of his grace, and will unite it within you into a single spirit, then this prayer will flow within you ceaselessly and will always be with you, delighting and nourishing you. It is this very thing that is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, for the dew from thee is healing to them. And when you will hold within yourself this nourishment for the soul, that is, this conversation with the Lord himself, then why would you go to the cells of the brethren, even though you may be called by someone? I tell you truly that this is idle talk and love of idleness. If you do not understand yourself, can you reason about anything else and teach others? Be silent. Be ceaselessly silent. Keep always in mind the presence of God and His name. Enter into conversation with no one. But, by every means, guard against judging those who speak much or less. Be, in this case, deaf and dumb. No matter what may be said about you, let it pass by your ears. As your example, you can take St. Stephen, the new, whose prayer was ceaseless, his disposition meek, his mouth silent, his heart humble, his spirit filled with tender feeling, his body and soul pure, his virginity immaculate, whose true poverty and whose non-acquisitiveness were unmurmuring, his obedience thorough, his execution patient, and his labor diligent. Sitting at meals, do not look and do not judge how much anyone eats, but be attentive to yourself, nourishing your soul with prayer. At dinner, eat sufficiently. At supper, restrain yourself. On Wednesdays and Fridays, if you are able, eat only once. Every day, without fail, sleep four hours a night, the tenth, eleventh, and twelfth, and the hour past midnight, 
that is, from 9 p.m. to 1 a.m. If you become weak, you can sleep more in the afternoon. Hold to this unfailingly, to the end of your life, for this is necessary to give rest to your head. I also, from my youth, have held to such a path, and we always beg the Lord God to give us repose at night time. If you will guard yourself thus, you will not be despondent, but healthy and joyful. I tell you in truth, that if you will conduct yourself thus, you will remain in this monastery without leaving until your death. Humble yourself, and the Lord will help you. Quote, and he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday, and thy light will shine before men. Discourse number 41 A reply to a brother who asked instruction on leading an anchoritic life. One brother, when he had the intent to go away into the wilderness, came to Father Seraphim, who was living in the wilderness, and asked him, How is it, Father, that some say that going away from cenobitic life into the wilderness is Phariseeism, and that by such means one shows disdain for the brethren or even judgment of them? Father Seraphim replied to this, it is not our business to judge others, and we should go away from our brotherhood, not out of hatred for it, but rather because we have accepted and bear on ourselves the angelic habit, to which it is not fitting to be in a place whereby word and deed the Lord God is angered. And therefore we, excluding ourselves from the brotherhood, go away only from hearing and seeing that which is opposed to God's commandments, which happens in many of the brethren. We do not flee men who are of one nature with us and bear one and the same name of Christ, but we flee the faults which they commit. As was said also to Arsenius the Great, flee men and you will be saved. One monk was blessed by the abbot to begin the anchoritic life. And the abbot wrote to Father Seraphim, asking him to receive this monk and discipline him as he himself would. When this monk came with such a letter to Father Seraphim, the latter received him quite kindly and blessed him to build another cell not so far from his own. When, however, this monk began to ask instructions of him, he told him, out of the deepest humility, that I myself don't know anything. And he reminded him of the words of the Savior, quote, Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Then he added, In the opinion of St. John of the latter, we should learn, not from an angel or a man, but from the Lord himself. Discourse number 42 on what an abbot should be. An abbot should be perfect in every virtue and have the senses of his soul trained by long schooling in the discernment of good and evil. An abbot should be well versed in the Holy Scripture. He should be studying day and night in the Lord's law. Through such occupations he may acquire for himself the gift of discerning good and evil. 
A true understanding of good and evil may be had only when an ascetic of piety comes to a sense of the future judgment and a foretaste of eternal blessedness which occurs in a pious soul while yet in this present earthly life in a mysterious and spiritual manner. Before coming to the discernment of good and evil, a man is not fit to shepherd rational sheep, but only irrational ones, because without the understanding of good and evil we cannot comprehend the workings of the evil one. And therefore an abbot, as a pastor of rational sheep, must also have the gift of discernment, so that in each case he can give useful advice to everyone asking his instructions. For, as Peter of Damascus says, not every man is fit to give advice to those who seek, but he who has received from God the gift of discernment, and from long experience in ascetic life has acquired a perspicacious mind. An abbot should also have the gift of penetrativeness, so that, from the consideration of things present, and past, he may foresee those future as well, and see through the wiles of the enemy. The distinguishing characteristic of an abbot should be his love for those subject to him, for a genuine shepherd, in the words of St. John of the Latter, is revealed by his love for his flock. For love compelled the supreme shepherd to be crucified on the cross. Discourse number 43. Instruction to an abbot on how to direct the brethren. A certain abbot, being by chance in Sarov Monastery, when meeting Father Seraphim asked his advice on how to direct the brethren. Father Seraphim gave him the following instruction. Let every abbot become and remain always in his relation to those subject to him as a wise mother. A mother who loves her children lives not to satisfy herself, but to satisfy her children. The infirmities of her infirm children she bears with love. Those who have fallen into filth she cleans, washes them calmly, clothes them in new white garments, puts their shoes on, warms them, feeds them, looks after them, comforts them, and from all sides strives to pacify their spirit so that she never hears the slightest cry from them and such children are well disposed to their mother thus should every abbot live not to satisfy himself but to satisfy those subject to him he should be condescending to their weaknesses bear with love the infirmities of the infirm heal their sinful diseases with the plaster of mercifulness raise with kindness those who have fallen into transgression, quietly cleanse those who have become sullied with the filth of some vice, and wash them by placing upon them fasting and prayer above the ordinary amount which is set forth for all, clothe them by instruction and by one's own exemplary life in garments of virtue, keep constant watch over them by every means comforting them, and from all sides defending their peace and repose to such an extent that the slightest cry or murmuring will never be heard from them, and then they will zealously strive to procure for the abbot peace and repose. 
With this, the spiritual instructions of Saint Seraphim end. Glory to our God.